Uh, we're talking about example this month. Our, the theme of our family month is for example. And we're looking at example in five different areas. So we're thinking about example this morning. So what age do you think a child begins learning from the example of his or her parents? What do you think? A couple years old? Year old? About six months. According to recent research done at the University of Würzburg, Germany, babies learn from their parents' example, at least from their mother's example, before they're born. Dr. Kathleen Wormke and a team of researchers recorded the noises that newborn babies make in a hospital maternity ward, newborns. She digitally graphed the pitch and cadence of those cries and then painstakingly compared baby for baby along ethnic lines. What she found was babies cry with an accent. In France, babies consistently inflect from a low to a high pitch, which is very French. Merci. And in Germany, they inflect from high to low, which is very German. Danke. Mark Buchanan writes about that. A baby eavesdrops on its mother for nine months. It puts its ear to the rail of her bones and listens to the train of her sorrow and gladness coming for miles. The child emerges from his mother's insides with her voice ringing in its ears, her music in its own bones. The baby's first instinct is to sing its mother's song. The powerful influence of example begins in our lives before we're even born. When the Apostle Paul tells his protege, Timothy, to set an example for believers in speech, in life, in love, in, in faith, and in purity. The word that the NIV translates as example is the Greek word tupas. Tupas was literally a die or stamp that was used to create an impression on some material. So think of a stamping machine that makes a perfect figure or shape out of some metal that it strikes. Or better yet, think of a typewriter, a tupas writer. The tupas strikes the sheet of paper, that's what it means to type, with just the right force to leave an impression that's immediately filled with ink. In the case of the typewriter, the metal tupas or typeface strikes against the paper, it leaves an indentation in the paper, which is called the antitype, or in Greek, antitupas. You see what Paul's doing? He is urging Timothy to leave his mark on people, to shape their lives through his contact with them. And we can apply Paul's instruction to Timothy to ourselves, in our home families, in our church family. Now to become this kind of example obviously requires us to be in contact with other people. You, you can only leave a mark if you come in contact. And some people fail at this with their children because they're so seldom with them. The television leaves a bigger mark on their kids than they do because it has so much more time with them. So if we're going to be an example, whether to the people in our homes or in our church, we have to come in contact with them. 
But even before that happens, or even as that happens, we have to be shaped by contact with the Lord. A person who's being shaped by Christ will be used by Christ to shape others, especially his or her family. That kind of person will leave his or her mark. Paul wants Timothy to leave a mark in those five areas, speech, lifestyle, love, faith, and purity. Two weeks ago, we looked at how this applies to speech. Last week, we looked at lifestyle. Today, we look at love. Now, we need a little context before we approach this important subject. Whether you're involved with a machine, say, at work, or you're involved with the work of art in a museum, or some production process, it's important to know the purpose for which that thing, whatever it is, was made. For example, a pencil lead might be about the same color and size as an Allen wrench, but you're not going to get very far with it if you try to tighten a hex bolt. If you look at some people's cars, you might come to the conclusion that they were made to be a sort of waste paper collection bin. But that would be a frightful waste of money and engineering to use a car like that. I had an English teacher who seemed to think that chalk was made to throw at the sixth grade boys who were goofing around in the back of class. And we loved him, by the way. He was our favorite teacher. But if you use something for the wrong purpose, you not only have the wrong and almost certainly inferior instrument for accomplishing your purpose, you also miss the real value of the thing that you're using. On days when the boys in the back of class were particularly rowdy, our sixth grade teacher might not have enough chalk left to write the homework assignment on the board at the end of class. See, we're pretty smart kids sitting in the back of class. Here's the question. For what purpose were humans made? What must we be doing in order to fulfill our potential as human beings? Think of humans as if they were machines. What was the human machine made to do? I've heard the great white shark described as an eating machine. I think it was in the movie Jaws years ago, but I, I remember that. It was made to eat. It lives to eat. What were humans made to do? What do they live to do? Created in the image of God, humans were made to love. That is at the very heart of Jewish and Christian thinking. Jesus was once asked by a biblical scholar, of all the commandments in the Bible, which is the most important? Without hesitation, Jesus not only answered his question, he gave him the two most important commandments in the Bible. The most important one is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Humans were made to love. And we have an almost unlimited potential for it. And because we were made to love, we can only flourish when we are loving. You can use a pencil to point with. You can use it to lift up a piece of cloth to see if there's a spider under it. You can even try to use it to turn a hex bolt, though you'll fail. The pencil can do lots of things, but when it's used to write a letter, particularly a love letter, or sketch the face of a child or a spouse, that pencil fulfills its purpose. It reaches its potential. Humans can do lots of things, but it's only when we love that we reach our potential. 
You were made to love, to love God, first of all, but also to love your spouse and family, to love your neighbor, to love your fellow church member, to love your co-workers, to love your cashier at the checkout counter, to love your enemy. You're made to love, love, love. If you're a Christian, that's what you do. All humans were created in the Heavenly Father's image to love. But Christ's people have been recreated through the redemption that came through Christ to be lovers. You, follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were made for this. You were made to love. The culture around us does not know that. They might think humans were made to lust or to be loved, or even, as the news seems to suggest, made to hate. We desperately need examples of how to love, how to love everyone in this broken world we live in. Have you ever flown over a barren area at night, looked out the airplane window and saw nothing, just darkness? I have. You're flying over Western Sahara, And there's nothing. You look down and you don't see anything. And then you come to some lights, just scattered. One and then another far away and then another one. And then more lights. And then a city with lots of lights. And pretty soon you're in Spain and there are lots of lights there. And then you come at last to the city of lights, to Paris. Now imagine that the lights represent acts of love. When we look at the world around us, it often seems dark, just devoid of love. But when we come to the church, we should see the light of love shining out in all directions. Today we're looking at 1 John. If love is light, then 1 John is the epistle of lights. Love lights up this entire book. In just four chapters of 1 John, the word love appears 46 times. And in chapter 4 alone, the word love is used 23 times, just from verse 7 to verse 21. John understood we are made to love because we're made to be like God and then made again, born again, if we're Christians, by his Spirit. Now we're going to read verses 7 through verse 12. We'll look beyond that, but we're going to read those verses to follow along right now. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, we're going to look at this as we get started. Look at verse 8. Whoever does not love. That's a present tense verb which suggests whoever continues not loving. John isn't talking about an isolated incident here. He's talking about a lifestyle. Whoever does not love does not 
know God. The implication is you can only know God as you love, and the more you love, the more you'll know God. Some people think that they know God and are mistaken. And their lovelessness proves it. At best, they know about God. They may say they know God. John actually uses that phrase over and over again. They say they know God. But a person does not and cannot know God unless he or she loves. See, it takes one to know one. Love knows love. Self-centeredness and indifference do not. Cannot. Why is that? We, why can't we know God unless we love? Because God is love. This is one of three factual statements in this passage that we have to grasp if we're going to become examples of love for our families at home and at church. See, the life of love is built on facts, not feelings. It's a mistake everybody makes. If you try to build a life of love, which you better do, because apart from love, you can't know God. If you try to build a life of love on the shifting sands of your feelings, that life's going to come crashing down. A life of love has to be built on the hard rock of facts. And this is the first of those three facts. Hard as granite, hard as diamond. God is love. There was never a truer word spoken. God is love. Everything he does is done in love. The creation of the world, philosophers have said, well, why did God ever create a world? And the answer is because he's love. The creation of the world is an expression of love. The mission of his son was a mission of love. Even his judgments are manifestations of love. God is love. Now, that doesn't mean that love is God. God defines love. Love does not define God. Still less of the things that pass for love in our culture. But at the heart of every trait that can truly be attributed to God, justice, mercy, holiness, goodness, at the heart of every one of his attributes is love. And love is at the heart of every trait that is truly Christian. If you take love out of righteousness, you're left with a dead legalism. You take love out of endurance, you just have obstinacy. You take love out of benevolence, all you've got is a handout. Every virtue, this is Richard McBride, every virtue is an expression of love. No virtue is really a virtue unless it's permeated or informed by love. See, the eternal kind of life that we receive when we trust in Jesus Christ, that gives us a new birth, a new start, that makes us God's children. That life originates in love. Physical life is carbon-based. Spiritual or eternal life is love-based. Love is in our spiritual DNA. We can love. We can love spouses and family members and neighbors and fellow church members and co-workers and cashiers and even enemies. We can do that Because God is love. But don't stop there. We can love because God is love. That's fact number one. By the way, there are only three times in the Bible where the Bible says God is something. And this is one of them. God is love. And we can love because God is love, but also we can love because God has loved. That's fact number two. 
And that's the point of verses 9 and 10. Look at them. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son in atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, God's love did not stay out there somewhere, feeling kindly disposed to us from a safe distance. It came as is the very nature of love to us. It met us in our need and our sin and the mess that's human life. It met us in Christ. This is love. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His love note didn't come by email. He didn't text I-L-Y, I love you. He sent his message in flesh, and then he posted it with nails to a cross. We learn how to love from him. See, we don't start it. He does. His substitutionary, sacrificial, self-giving, meets you in the mess, love, comes first. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. When we couldn't help ourselves, he helped us. When we were lost, he found us. When we were headed for condemnation, he forgave us. He didn't wait for us. He's the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. His love comes first. His love is like the sun. We can't always see it, but it's always there. We can curse his love. We can deny it. We can hide from it the way a person can curse the sun and hide from it in a heavily curtained room. But God keeps on loving, just like the sun keeps on shining. In fact, his love will continue long after the sun stops shining. Eons from now, when the sun is imploded or exploded or whatever our particular star is going to do, God's love will still be as fresh as morning. His love didn't start with us. We didn't call it into existence. God did not start loving because humans needed his love, though we certainly did. Still less because we merited his love, which we certainly didn't. He loved us because he is love. His love didn't start with us. But there is a sense in which it can stop with us. Of course, we can't stop God from loving, no matter what we do. But we can be the short and the circuit of God's love. This spring, the youth group had a game night, and it was a beautiful evening. It was during spring break. It was a beautiful evening. Everyone was having a good time when the power at our house, over here east of us, suddenly went out. So I went outside to see what had happened, see if the youth barn had also lost power. I mean, there's 60 kids over there, and without power, that's, that would be a nightmare. So I went out and looked around, but the youth barn still had power. And what had happened was this. A farmer down the road had knocked over a utility pole, and the breakers on every pole for almost a mile popped. And the very last place that the power reached was the youth barn. The first open breaker was between the barn and my house. Well, when I refuse to love, which is to say when I refuse to pass along God's love, since all true love originates with him, I become the open breaker that shorts the circuit of God's love. The boundless energy of God's love that was meant to pass through me to all the people around me is cut short. Now, God will run other lines of love to those people. My failure 
will not, it cannot impede his faithfulness. But I become the circuit breaker. My life fails to accomplish its one great purpose. And that brings us to the third great fact that makes a life of love possible. First one, remember, stated in verse 8 is God is love. The second state in verse 10 is God has loved. The third is this. God is loving. God is love. God has loved. God is loving right now, and he intends to love through you. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In theology, it is axiomatic that people cannot see God. We learn that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But when we love each other, something remarkable happens. The message of God's love becomes visible. People can see it for themselves. If I were to write a message to you with invisible ink, which is what I kinds of thing I used to do when I was a kid, mess around and try this and that. You did too, probably. So I'm writing you a message with invisible ink, say it's diluted lemon juice. And I seal that paper in an envelope and I address it to you with a regular pen and send it to you. You'd open it up and say, this is supposed to be from Shane, but there's nothing on it. He really is losing his mind, isn't he? But expose that ink to heat and suddenly my message written in my own hand will appear. And just so, God's message of forgiveness and new life goes unread in our world until the warmth of our love brings it out. Only then does it become readable. Our love helps people see and believe in God. It sets the stage for the effective proclamation of the gospel. And that's how God planned it. Your love is the switch. Or the breaker. You and I have the potential to turn on the light that allows people to see the invisible. So there are three great facts that make it possible for us to love, to love everyone, to love all the time. God is love. God has loved. And God is loving through you. And you and I are to become examples of this love to each other, to our families. And we know that. So what do we do? We tell ourselves, man, I got to try harder. I have to be more loving. When we go to 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, and we read that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, and we think, I've got to be more patient. I'm not very good at that. I've got to try harder. All right, no more excuses. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient if it kills me. I'm going to be patient. We read it's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And we say, man, I've been thinking too much about myself. I'm really bad at this. I've got to be less self-centered. I need to think about others first. We go right through all the attributes in 1 Corinthians 13 that way. We see how far we, short and how far we fall short and promise to try harder. I'm going to be kinder. I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to be less angry. But if you want to be an example of love, that is not the way to go about it. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, this is really important to understand. He was not telling us what we need to be, even though that's how everybody comes to 1 Corinthians 13. 
He was not telling us what we need to be, but what love already is. When we read 1 Corinthians 13 as a requirement to be more patient, kinder, free of envy, and so on, we're not really hearing what Paul's telling us. He's not telling us to pursue these things. He's telling us to pursue love. In fact, that's exactly what he says in chapter 14, verse 1. The word that he uses means to run after something, to hound it, to refuse to let it get away. It's actually the word that's commonly used, translated as persecute. As the persecutor hounds the believer and chases after him and won't let him get away, so we're to chase after love. All the behaviors in 1 Corinthians 13 are the result of receiving God's love, the God who is love, and then living in it. As we live in God's love and his love lives in us, we become the kind of people. That's what God cares about. Not just doing the deed. He cares about the people we become. We become the kind of people who are patient, kind, free of envy and anger. Paul doesn't tell us to pursue the result, but the cause, love. If we do that, we'll become examples of love. The way forward is not to try harder, but to trust more. Verse 16 says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And so, because God is love, God has love, and God even now wants to love through us, and so we know and rely on, literally, we trust the love that God has for, literally, in us. What a great thing it is to encounter someone who doesn't like you and be able to know and trust God's love in you for that person. What a powerful thing to lean into his love for that person, to count on it, and then express it. Miracles happen around people just like that. Now, it takes faith to do that. Faith that God is love, that God has loved, and that God will love through us. Recently in the news, you saw that 21 Egyptians were killed while they were working in Libya, brutally murdered by ISIS. As soon as that news came out, an Egyptian photographer named Jonathan Rashad traveled to Al-Aur, a Christian village in Egypt, which was the hometown of 13 of those 21 martyrs. He went there to take pictures at the funeral. Mr. Rashad wanted to capture the pain and the grief that the villagers felt over the unjust deaths of their sons and their brothers. Well, he found plenty of pain and grief, but he found something else besides, something he hadn't expected. He found forgiveness. At the funeral for these men, the pastor reminded their friends and their relatives, and I quote, God asked us to even love our enemies. What an example that was to that photographer and to the world, including to the killers of those men. But those villagers will never be able to love their enemies by trying, only by trusting. Love doesn't come from in here. It comes from up there and through us. Trusting by knowing the love of God who sent his son to the cross and trusting the love of God who sent his spirit into our hearts. And you can trust him. I mentioned at the outset that the word translated example, tupas, remember? 
refers to the stamp that creates an impression on some material. Paul wants our love to create an impression on our children, on our church family, on the people around us. He wants us to leave a mark of love, and love leaves a mark. But not just on the people who receive it, also on the people who give it. Every time you dare to trust the love that God has for us and in us, you can say with confidence, that's going to leave a mark. The ultimate example of love was Jesus. If anyone ever left a mark on the world, it was him. And loving the world also left its mark on Jesus. Actually, five marks. In his hands, in his feet, in his side. Those nail prints are the marks of God's love for you and me. And if we're going to love like Jesus, we'll bear marks too. Be prepared. But let's go make our mark anyways. Let's be an example of love. Let's pray. God, I invite you to do what you need to do in me and in your people here so that we can live up to what you made us for, so that miracles can happen around us, so that your name can receive glory and people can receive the eternal kind of life that comes through your son. God, love in us and through us. Teach us to know and to count on the love that you have in us and for us through Jesus Christ. Amen.